You're listening to The Brave Files. Did you know that children start forming biases around age six? This week, I'm talking to Teach and Transform's Liz Kleinrock. Liz and I discuss opening up space for conversations with our children about social justice and anti-racism work, which is actually the key to changing the world. We talk about giving our children access to language and conversation around social justice and honoring everyone's cultural backgrounds and experiences. You see, personal growth isn't always about learning something new. It's often about changing the way you think about and view the people around you. Special thanks to our Patreon supporter, Jamie Fagan. This episode is dedicated to her. Thanks to the support of Jamie and people like her, we're able to continue building our incredible Brave movement. I'd love to have you join us on Patreon, where you can earn some pretty great swag, all while helping us build a community of people who choose bravely in big and small ways every single day. Visit us on patreon.com slash bravefiles to learn more. Now here's the show. Learner, educator, and evolving. This is Heather Vickery, and you're listening to The Brave Files, stories from people living courageously. When we choose bravely in big and small ways, it powerfully elevates our lives. I hope these stories connect with you and encourage you to embrace bravery in every possible way, day after day. Together, we can build a movement of courageous living that enriches both our lives and our communities. And if you enjoy the show, I ask you to please share it with others. Maybe think of someone who you want to choose bravely right alongside you. Thanks for tuning in. Now here's the show. Welcome to the Brave Files, friends. You're going to be so happy you decided to join us today because we have an incredible guest with us. I've been following today's guest, Liz Kleinrock, for a couple of years now. She's an anti-biased educator and a consultant. Her work brings social justice to the forefront of classroom conversations. She's recently done a TED Talk. She's a published author and a really incredible young woman. Liz, welcome to The Brave Files. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm excited to have you. I felt kind of like a, a geeky kid in a candy shop when you said yes to being on the show. So I have to be honest with that. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I love your work just as much. So I, it's really exciting just to get to have some time with you to chat today. Thank you very much for that. So tell us a little bit about, I do want to hear about your background, but what is Teach and Transform, which is your organization? And then how did you get into this type of work? I feel like I kind of entered this work by accident. Um, it's certainly not something that I imagined myself doing when I was a kid. I don't think I even knew that this type of work existed, truthfully, when I was a kid. I love that you say that because I wonder if now that, the lives that you touch and, and folks who do the type of work you do, they can't say that. Yeah, it's, it's true. Cool. And I think, you know, part of being in this field, is just so incredible is giving kids access to language and the ability to have these conversations that I never had access to when I was young. Um, and as someone who grew up in a transracial adopted family, there was so much going on with my identity and the things that I was experiencing and hearing. And I didn't really have the language to describe or really articulate what I was experiencing or how I was feeling. And I don't ever want another kid to have to, to feel that way. Um, 
So I hope the work that I'm doing is empowering students, empowering their families to continue to have these conversations with their kids and give them access. So yeah, sorry, I just got on a no, little tangent. That's okay. I, the, the work you're doing is doing all of that. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited to have you here for this conversation because I am incredibly committed to social justice and restorative justice work, which is why I've been like a geeky fan of yours for a while now. So yes, it's working. I know that it's working because at least in my house, because I take the things I learn from you and use them at my dinner table and in conversations with my kids. So thank you. But let's tell everybody what it is. <laughs> So Teach and Transform truthfully started as kind of like a personal portfolio for my work. I had a feeling about two years ago that probably a lot of folks on my personal social media pages might have been a little sick of seeing me consistently post about education, about <laughs> anti-racism, about all this work that I was doing with kids. Like some folks might be interested in it, others maybe not so much. And I also I just lost. wanted a way to, yeah, I just wanted a way to kind of compartmentalize everything that I was doing and have it in one place, as well as, you know, reach out into the virtual world and try to connect with educators who are like-minded and doing similar work, because it can also feel very isolating, you know, when you're really operating what feels like a silo and you don't have a lot of thought partners um, yeah. around to bounce ideas off of or see what's going on in their classrooms. So I started this Instagram page started posting, you know, books that I was using, some examples of um, lessons and units that I was doing with students. And I feel like that's kind of what set my account apart a bit from others. Um, this is, I see a lot of really phenomenal original work these days, but I was trying to show what I was creating with my students and yeah. also unpack the planning process, the teaching process, the types of comments and questions that were coming up every day with my class. And now it's kind of transformed into a way for me to also share these practices with other family members, with other educators, administrators, anyone who's really involved with working with students and working with kids. So over the past year or two, I've also grown this platform to also go into schools and organizations and also help them develop their own anti-bias practices. Right. So let's dig in on that. Up until last year, I may not get this completely right. I know last year you taught third grade. Mm -hmm. I don't, were you teaching third grade for a while or, or have you moved around in grades? I have moved around a lot. I think at my <laughs> school, I was the most moved teacher. It's like the blessing and curse of being someone who is viewed as flexible. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I taught first, second, third, and fourth grade and had taught fifth grade at a different school before that. And how did it come to be that you were doing this anti-bias social justice work in the classroom with these very young children? Yeah. So when I was in grad school, which was also my first year of teaching at the school that I just left, um, I was there for seven years. We had a really strong focus on social emotional learning. And I also had the privilege of informally looping um, with the same grade level of kids. So I had like a mix of the same group for three years. Is this a public school or a progressive education private school? This is a public charter school. Okay. Because my kids go to a progressive school and those are all core elements of a progressive school. And I just, it would be so amazing to see that in a public school. So I love <laughs> that that's out there somewhere. <laughs> so we had gone through a lot of the social emotional curriculum, a lot of the books. And since I had 
the same group of kids. It's not like I can reuse everything every year. I had to be creating yeah. new things or else they'd be like, you know, we did that last year. We read that book last year. And I thought we had done a really great job of examining ourselves and doing a lot of identity work as well as emotional identification, problem solving within our immediate classroom community. But I really wanted to see how these kids could take this language and these skills and apply them to the outside world that they were also living and participating in. And so the very first unit I did was around gender and stereotyping through the lens of Halloween costumes and toy marketing and was actually able to integrate it into our readers and writers curriculum. We were reading fairy tales and folk tales and there are gender stereotypes. Yeah for days in those books. And it was just really amazing to see like what the kids were coming into the classroom with just because, you know, the, their critical lens had just shifted a bit. They would come in and say things like, you know, I was watching this movie and I noticed that the girl kept getting in trouble and had to be saved by the boy. And when I thought about it, it really bothered me. And these kids were second graders. Yeah. It was really just incredible to see the immediate impact that it was having just based on the things they were bringing into class. Did you get any pushback from families when you started disrupting the social norms of their kids? <laughs> I had been really fortunate um, and definitely recognized that I was very privileged to work in a progressive school and a progressive neighborhood and a progressive state. Yeah, um, you're in that, Yeah, in Los yeah. Angeles. So a lot of folks are just on board based on where they choose to send their kids to school. Mm-hmm over the past years have had some pushback, not very much. Interestingly, it's all been around gender and sexuality, not around race, which I am still finding to be a pattern to this day. That is, it is fascinating. We had a conversation around our dinner table last night. Okay. You're going to know this and I'm going to get it wrong. Um, There is, is it, is it Baltimore? There's a, there's a, a state, a, a town, Baltimore is not a state, that just changed all of their gendered words. Like they, they don't long, is it oh, driving me crazy? They don't say policeman anymore. They only say police officer. They don't say manhole anymore. Like they changed anything in their government conversation that was gendered to be non-gendered. Do you know what I I'm talking about? Was Berkeley. Oh, it is Berkeley. There was a B sticking it in there. That makes sense. It was California. <laughs> but it's fascinating. So my 14-year-old, who's super feminist, social justice oriented, like get out activist fight girl said, oh, I just kind of think that's too much. Couldn't they spend their time and resources focusing on something that's more important? And I was like, well, okay. Like, let's talk about how words matter and how they impact us and when things are around us all the time, how that unconsciously motivates us, right? Or changes us or any of that. So it was a great conversation. So I could see how progressive parents are like, but that's not that big a deal. We don't need to worry about that. Is that, was that the kind of feedback you were getting? Like, why are we, why are we doing this? Actually, the feedback I was getting was more along religious grounds of what we morally believe or do not believe, which definitely makes it a little a little harder to access that conversation if you're not entering from that same point. Yes, your lens matters in that scenario. Oh, that's fascinating. Can we dig in for just a second? Yeah. On that, like it, if we're talking about girls don't need to be saved or, you know, I don't know, whatever example you want to come up with. How does that challenge religion? 
it was not so much about like male female roles and fairy tales. It was around gender expression. Okay. Um, so we had read a book called Jacob's new dress, um, that is pretty neutral in my opinion, in terms of language. The book never explicitly says the word transgender or non-binary or anything like that. And I love now that there are more picture books for young kids that do include such intentional language, but this book was not one of them. It was just about a boy who wanted to wear a dress to school and got teased and um, how his family, you know, communicated with him about it. That was it. Yeah. And I got an email from a family saying, it was a very polite email saying, hey, it's come to our attention that this book was read in class. And just so you know, like this isn't really what our family is about. So if you're going to have other conversations like this, we ask that you excuse our student, excuse our wow. child. Yeah. I should have known that, <laughs> that you were talking about gender expression. That makes sense. And of course, that's a big topic. I assume you didn't stop talking about it in the classroom. I did not. I think my attitude, perhaps not the best, um, considering this is also one of my first units was, well, I already read the book, so. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And were there times when that student then had to leave the class for you to teach curriculum? No, um, I think because I was still kind of getting my feet wet with everything. That was the main book we had read that first year about gender expression and then had moved on to representation and literature. Gotcha. And definitely over the past year, I became a lot more intentional with the language I was using. And also my students, even though they're third graders, were coming into the classroom already knowing what those words meant, or at least knew those words and identities existed. And if they're bringing it to me, I don't know, I think it's unethical for me to not honor their questions and what knowledge they're bringing in. I love that. Our kids, I have a brand new fourth grader. So she's in third grade last year. And I, I wonder if this has been your experience with your classroom kids are so much more aware and it's so much easier for them to adjust their pronoun usage and their gender assumptions. And a good example, not that long ago, I was taking my kids out to dinner and we're waiting for a parking spot. And I saw two people get in their car and I don't know what people just do. They sit in their car, but um, we're waiting forever and they won't leave. And I said, come on, ladies, somebody pull out. And my nine-year-old said, mama, how do you know they're ladies? And I said, oh, well, they both looked like ladies. And she goes, so? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, okay, you're right. That does not mean that they identify as ladies. And I shouldn't have made that assumption. Thank you. And she's like, that's ridiculous. Why would you just make that assumption? So I was really, I was really proud of her. (laughs) Kids definitely get it easier than adults do. Like you could, you know, try to convince an adult for weeks or months of years why, you know, pronoun identification matters and why it's important. And that same conversation with a child takes like 30 seconds. Yeah. Like, oh, that person doesn't identify as male or female. We're going to use the pronoun they. Okay. And that's like the end of the conversation. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Well, a lot of people say uh, that kids are too young to understand social justice or to really get that. I know that you don't believe that and neither do I, but what's your counter to that? Sure. I mean, 
for folks who are entering the conversations from a very intellectual perspective, which is <laughs> generally the perspective folks take if they haven't had personal experience with racism, with yep. homophobia, transphobia, things like that. So I can pull out research. Um, you know, there has been a lot of research that shows that children's ability to identify people based on race starts as young as two years old. Children have identifiable racial biases um, by the time they enter preschool, wow. as well as start to form their own gender identity before, I believe, the age of three. So whether or not you explicitly want to talk about it, these are things that are already happening to kids, like all kids, not just some kids, all kids. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me. And I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. Can you give us some examples of some of the anti-racism work that you were doing in the classroom? Sure. Um, I think when starting to talk about race and the history of you know racial oppression and things like that i think it is most responsible for me working with young kids for them to understand what race is first before learning how it's been manipulated and used to uphold some people and oppress other people yeah. so often we just start by asking the kids what do you know about race what questions do you have about race and it's just fascinating to see how kids as young as like 7 6 years old have so many biases that they're already bringing into the conversation. And you can't really combat biases unless you know what they are. Like you can make assumptions, right? But having evidence is different. And from there, based on what they think they know or understand and the questions they have, we kind of go from there. And I think the beautiful thing with kids is that they are so focused on action. And that's really what anti-racism is all about. It's not just... Yeah. I don't use racial slurs, like I'm friends with people of color. It's not that. It's what are you doing every day? What are you saying every day to try to dismantle systems of white supremacy? And kids are all about taking action. Yeah. You know, they want to act or else, you know, what they think, like, what's the point of any of this? I think that is incredibly fascinating. I just was reading, I do a lot of, of anti-racism work as well, but just a meme the other day that I thought this might really connect with people, which is the beauty about anti-racism work is it doesn't mean you, you aren't ever racist. It means you'll call things out that you'll work to create change. You know, I screw up all the time. I fully understand that it's a, a racist system and that I was raised that way and that it would be impossible for me to not ever accidentally screw something up. But I, you know, I'm honest about it. Do the kids ever, have they ever, because I know you're not in the classroom anymore, gotten upset, uncomfortable? Like, how do you work through any potential hurt feelings or even white fragility, which I imagine even nine-year-olds have? Sure. I actually haven't seen a whole lot of white fragility with children. I see oh, it a lot good. more with their parents. Yeah. <laughs> with white students, and I think that this is something that definitely needs to be addressed in how we develop student identities, is that often when we're doing activities around um, you know, heritage and culture or even just identity mapping and trying to identify ethnicity, a lot of my white students will come up to me and say, I don't have one. Like, I don't have a culture. I don't have mm -hmm. an ethnicity. And I've always found that to be a really interesting it is. trend. So I haven't seen that as much. Oftentimes, like, kids will think that anything related to race is automatically racist. And so at the beginning of the year, it's a lot of having conversations around just because you say what someone's race is to describe them or you make a comment about race doesn't inherently mean that it's racist because a lot of the kids will just say, oh, like that's racist, that's racist. But 
It's right. not. Not so, everything related to race is racism. Yeah. <laughs> and I it, to unpack that a little, um, and this has been part of my growth process, what I think I hear you saying is it's absolutely okay to say that Beyonce is a, a, a beautiful, powerful Black woman. That's yeah. not right. It is, she is. is just, <laughs> yes, exactly. But we people want to take the sensitivity thing um, and turn it. I, I, right. They want to take something and sort of manipulate it. I find instead of being honest. And so honoring people's cultural backgrounds and experiences and talking about that gives them strength instead of being racist. Right. Is yeah, that absolutely. And I even give that example with students about, you know, colorblindness, which is, oh, yeah. you know, the, the belief system that a lot of folks are brought up in. Like if we just treat everyone the same, like that makes it all okay. Um, which is not true. I tell my students, like I am a very proud Asian American woman. If you ever described me to somebody as Asian, as Korean, that's not racist. Like you're pointing out a part of my identity that I actually really love that I'm really proud of. Yeah. The difference is if you're using those identity markers to put me down, you know, to say insulting negative yeah. things about me based on what I look like or where I come from. Yeah. Or making assumptions about how smart you may be, right? That's an Asian stereotype is oh, yeah. all, 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 all the model minority stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, I think that's so, I think it's so fascinating. I loved that you, you would do whatever work you were doing in the classroom, you would have up on your big post-it note and you would take photos of those and put those up on your Instagram, which is all still there, right? People can, can, what's your Instagram tag? Oh, it's a teach and transform. transform. Y'all should go look at it because it's really, really good. What do you think was, is, was the biggest struggle to bringing this type of social justice, anti-bias work into the classroom? I think that trust needs to be developed on all fronts. Like I need to show that I am working to educate myself on language, on history, on teaching strategies, on knowing my students to make sure that I'm not bringing in things that they're not going to be able to access or stuff that's going to, you know, really trigger them. Um, You know, that community building piece is super important. Gaining trust of my administration that I can do it right and do it well. Um, And trust on behalf of families that if your kid is going to be in a class with me and we're going to be talking about, you know, historical systems of racial oppression, like that's a lot. And that is a big thing to ask families to hand over that trust and, you know, allow their kids to participate with me. Yeah, absolutely. What has been the the biggest silver lining, the biggest surprise, pleasant surprise for you? I think just the relationships that you build, you know, it's, it's hard when you're a teacher and you have a new group of kids every fall and maybe some of them keep in touch with you after that year and some of them don't and you wonder what they're up to. But the kids who I have been able to keep in touch with, it's really amazing to see how the work and the lessons and conversations we had in like second, third, fourth grade, now they're in middle school, um, how they've really stuck with them and really resonated with them. I love that. I love it so much. So I want to ask you about a word choice. I've been dying to ask you about this. Actually, yeah. You have um, uh, teaching tolerance 
is that your book? It's your program. I'm not exactly sure what it is. I'll let you tell us. But my question is why the word tolerance over the word acceptance? Because oh, it's such a great question. <laughs> I work, um, especially as an LGBTQ ally, we are not, we are not trying to get to tolerance. Tolerance is not a good thing. It's, it's about acceptance. So yeah. Yeah. So teaching tolerance is a branch of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Okay. It is their kind of education division in teaching tolerance puts out professional development, uh, lesson plans, resources, um, anti-bias guides and practices for educators. And they really focus on K-12 teachers. Okay. And they just have such an amazing amount of resources out there. And so I won their award last year in 2018. Thank you. So now I'm part of their advisory board. I think you are not the only person who has brought up the problematic word choice of tolerance. And I think when the organization, you know, was created years ago, tolerance probably was what folks were striving for. And now we're at a point where that's not enough. Like we want more. I do believe that talking about renaming is in the discussion right now, but I can't talk about it. (laughs) Privacy. I'm glad to hear that. I am because that's something, although you bring up a really valid point, everything is steps, right? And so when they were first introducing this, I think it was tolerance. Like, let's just be, let's be okay with each other. Like, let's just let people do their own thing. And, And now we've progressed to bringing them into the fold and accepting them. Well, I'm glad, I'm really glad to hear that. You recently did a TED talk, not even a TEDx talk, uh, like a legit TED talk. Oh, you guys can't see it. She's, she blushed. It's so cute. Well, first of all, it's amazing. And we're going to have it up in our show notes. Tell us about the TED talk. And I'm dying to just know what that experience was like for you. Thank you. Um, it was really scary and surreal. And I still can't like really think that it happened. Um, I did. There's video proof. Um, yes, there is. So last year I made a lesson around talking about consent with my third graders. And it was around the time of the Supreme Court hearings and everything coming out with Justice Kavanaugh. And I just thought like, man, there are so many things that we could do to get ahead of this. Like we can't continue to just react to these types of things happening in our communities. So like what's something that I could actually do to take action with my students? Oh, like teach them about respecting people's boundaries and how you can communicate what your boundaries are with people. If, if it's about language and tone and body language, like sometimes these are things that need to be really explicitly taught and we just can't assume that kids because they're socialized will get it. Yeah. So this work went viral very quickly, um, very surprisingly. And the folks over at TED, um, one of their editors caught sight of it and invited me to participate in their education everywhere salon, which took place in January of this year. Um, and so I got to go to New York and, do my thing and to get to meet all these really other amazing people who are doing incredible work in education. Like it was so awesome to just yeah. you know, connect with the folks that they had brought in as well. Well, I'm so glad that, that they had their eyes out and they were watching because your TEDx or your TED talk is amazing. And that's the kind of thing you and I have actually talked about this before, particularly in the area of consent. Um, we have to, rethink and rework almost every aspect of how we raise children mm-hmm. in order to actually change that conversation. So I'm grateful that that you're out there doing that work. It was surreal and crazy. Was it so much fun? 
It was, it was really terrifying. I <laughs> memorized my talk, which I think came in a little under like 12 minutes and I hadn't memorized anything since like truly being in a play in like middle school. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was scary. My, my boyfriend helped me a lot. Um, he gave up lots and lots of hours to help me rehearse, which is great. <laughs> Any tips or tricks for people who are going to be doing some public speaking, which talk about being brave, uh, folks, most folks are pretty scared of doing that. So any tips? Yeah. For um, okay. So Chris Anderson, who hosted Ted wrote a book on how to do it. <laughs> okay. So they actually, the first thing they did was send me the book and I read the whole thing in like a day, <laughs> but you know, I spent like hours watching other people's talks and I got really fixated on what people do with their hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> which was something I hadn't really thought about and then became like overly self-conscious of what I was doing with my hands and I was talking I think, but just trying to develop your own authentic voice and not trying to sound like somebody else, even like the people who you admire the most, like you don't want to sound like someone else. You want to sound like you. That's right. So I hope, I hope I did. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you did. And there is only one you. And I say that to you, Liz, who I can see through my computer screen and all of you who are listening, there's only one you bring yourself authentically to the stage, whether that's an actual stage or the stage of life. And you're going to notice some pretty spectacular responses and reactions to that. Liz, do you, do you feel brave? Does this work feel brave to you? It does. And some days it requires more bravery than others. Like I know that there are messages that I can put out there um, that are important that focus on like cultural responsiveness and seeing all of your students. And I know that like 99% of folks will see it and be on board with it. Yeah. And then there are some others, particularly around, you know, inclusion of like transgender, non-binary folks and students and activism around, you know, acknowledging indigenous lands around whiteness and white supremacy, Mm -hmm. white privilege, white fragility. And those are the topics that tend to make people bristle a bit more. So I do know that when I put out blog posts or, you know, any words into the public sphere about those topics, I'm like, yeah, I can imagine like there are going to be some responses. Like my inbox is going to look a little funky later. How do you handle that? How do you process the the haters or the the trolls that come in? And it really depends on the mood. I'm I, I can see that. Else. I get that. Yeah. I don't read comments on articles ever. So like I know Smart. on even on like on the TED website, there's a number of comments. I haven't read any of them. I learned after the consent chart went viral, never to read the comments and (laughs) and a really healthy practice. Um, Granted, like a lot of things just found their way into my inbox anyways, Mm -hmm. but I don't take it that personally. I think when a lot come in a row, it can feel like a lot emotionally, but if it's just like one or two, at the end of the day, like I tell myself, like these people don't know me. They have no idea who I am. And if they are coming at me in a certain way, it actually reveals a lot more about them than it does about me. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And I always say folks who are in the public eye in any way, whether it's a huge way, a huge celebrity or someone like me, who's not a huge celebrity. My kids think I am because you can yes. Google me. But um, <laughs> if once you start getting some trolls, I kind of think you've made it. Like some, the people are actually paying attention. When everything that everybody says is nice, it's probably just people who already like you <laughs> who are paying attention. <laughs> Yeah. And like definitely the quality of trolls. Like I know I got Megan Kelly talked about me on her show. Oh. Ben Shapiro tweeted some 
super complimentary things about me too. Uh, so wow. if I'm, I'm bothering the right people. That's right. <laughs> I can appreciate that. I, I think that's actually pretty powerful stuff. If you could give one piece of advice, like a first step for people to create positive change when it comes to anti-bias work or social justice, restorative justice work, what would you suggest they start with if they haven't done it yet? Oh, I think, and this is advice I know a lot of folks give, but you really have to know yourself in all of it. And if you aren't comfortable having the conversations, like even with yourself in your head, you know, <laughs> that might be a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, at least like from my perspective as an educator, I tell people that if you're not comfortable having talks about like gender or religion or race with your peers, with your friends, like the people you feel comfortable with, you're probably not ready to have them with children. Absolutely. I would hardly recommend not having them yeah. with children. But they're at this point in our society, there really is no reason to not be doing this work and to educate yourself. And I think that's where I sometimes have a hard time masking my frustration when I get questions like, where do I start? Like, what do I do? Like, well, anywhere. There are so many books out there. <laughs> there are so many podcasts, like the one that you're currently listening to, that are going to help you dig deeper into these topics. And if finance is a cost, like subscribing to podcasts doesn't cost money. Going to the library doesn't cost money. Following activists and educators on social media doesn't cost money. And there are really easy ways where you can get these nice, like little tidbits of information to sit and chew on and reflect upon and then go back for more. Like there's no reason to not be doing the work right now. I completely, completely agree with you on that. Do you, uh, you have a great resources page, which we'll link to in the show notes for, but most of those, maybe they're not, are they kids books? Are they books you recommend people read to kids? Do you have a favorite go-to book for adults to get to know themselves, to ask themselves these questions and have these conversations at least in their own head? Yeah, I think it, it depends on your identity. If you're a white person, I would recommend White Fragility by yes. Robin D'Angelo. <laughs> we did an um, entire episode on that book. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so I highly recommend that one. I think if no matter who you are, there are always going to be bits and pieces of your identity, especially if you're like coming from a marginalized background, if you're a person of color where your history isn't represented. And I found that in the past year as an Asian American, there has just been so much left out of my history and my heritage that I didn't know about. And so reading up on that about yeah. the people who came before me has been incredibly empowering. I love and that. I guess that's where I'd recommend people yeah. to start. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. The work that you do is so incredible and it's, it is transformative and it is powerful. But I also imagine sometimes you get tired. It's hard to push all the time, even when you know you're doing the right thing. So how do you keep yourself level? Do you have any daily grounding rituals? Like, yeah. How do you stay in it really? I lean on my friends and my family a lot. Yeah. Um, I like having thought partners to talk to, to vent to, to reflect with. Um, I love that term, thought partners. Yeah, and I exercise a lot. That's definitely like the number one stress reliever. I'm doing a lot of Pilates, a lot of spinning. <laughs> 
particularly just classes where there's an instructor where I don't have to think like someone yeah. else does the thinking for me for 45 minutes to an hour. I'm totally super happy in that. that. I totally get that. Giving up control for just a little bit, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Those are awesome. Thank you for that. And, and how do you celebrate? I'm a big believer in the power of celebration. I'd be curious to know if you, if you brought celebration into your classroom as well, when, when we take a moment and we stop and we think about what we've done well, what we've achieved, what we're proud of, and then to share that, it's like a, it becomes this really fast moving train where we can collect more to celebrate. So how do you celebrate? Sometimes depending on my mood, it looks like just taking off some time to do nothing related to yeah. work. Yes, absolutely. Granting myself a break <laughs> is a way to celebrate. Um, more often I just, I want to share it with like my friends and my partner and like, for example, like when I got my recent book deal, I was so yes, excited and congrats. wanted, thank you. I wanted to just go out to dinner with him. Like that's really all I wanted. Yeah. Um, so just little it. things like that. It doesn't have to be like super over the top. It's just something that I want to do and I can put myself first if it's for an hour or two hours or yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Tell us quickly about your book, whatever you can share about your new book. Sure. It is a book to help educators who are struggling with implementing equity and inclusion work in the classroom for any number of reasons. Um, So identifies different barriers or issues they face and tries to give them proactive solutions of how to work through it. That is so exciting. And because it's a a big time publisher, do you have a, a project launch date? Like when can we expect this? little good for a while. <laughs> I know you need time to write it. <laughs> Sometimes they don't give you that much time though. Yeah. They actually were trying to put me on a much tighter timeline. Um, and realize like I can do a lot of things. I don't know if like writing a book in like four months is for you. one of those things to have a bit more time now. Good for you for pushing back on that. Well, what are you doing now that you're not in the classroom? How, how are you taking this work and, and using it? Sure. So I'm consulting with other schools, which has been really awesome. Some schools have set up um, longer term partnerships, which is really what I want. It doesn't feel great to go in to a school once, kind of do your thing for a couple hours and then peace out. Um, So if I can work with schools over the course of a year or two to really help them develop their own equitable and inclusive practices in the classroom or when it comes to school policies, that work has been really incredible. And I really love being able to celebrate and share what, what I've been able to do in the classroom yeah. and also just get to know different communities. Cause I don't think there's like a one size fits all to this work. Like you have to know who your school community is and what they need. Yeah. That's exciting. I, I love the idea of you being out there and having personal contact with all of these different people. I mean, that really has a tremendous ripple effect uh, in, in bringing this work to everyone. And I can't wait for it to trickle its way out to the Midwest so that we can see more of it here. I love it. Well, as we come to the close to the end of the show, I, I get to ask a question that's near and dear to my heart, which is what is your favorite charitable organization to support? Oh, okay. So I have a lot. Um, <laughs> I feel like for for the past few years, it's been Brian Stevens's the Equal Justice Initiative in um, in Alabama, working with folks who have been like wrongfully accused and are on death row, yeah. particularly folks who were incarcerated as youth, um, people of color, um, people with different types of disabilities. That organization is incredible. And more recently, a friend of mine shared with me the Yellowhammer Fund, which is also in Alabama, and they provide 
financial support, transportation services, and access to abortions and wow. reproductive care. It's actually an organization that supports three only. I think there's only three clinics left in the state of Alabama. Wow. And so EJI is great. They have a huge you know, national base and lots of people know that organization, but I think it's also important to focus in on you know, the smaller grassroots organizations who are working particularly within like one community. Yeah, absolutely. And I am delighted to know that they're out there doing that because that is incredibly important work all throughout the country, but especially in the South. So thank you for sharing that. We actually have an, an episode that I did with a, a man named Omar Yarmini. It's one of our earlier episodes six and seven or seven and eight called the theory of accountability. And here in, in Illinois, are you familiar with that term? Mm-mm. So he spent um, 15 years in prison for a murder that he didn't commit. And they always knew he didn't commit it. He was, he was sentenced based on the theory of accountability because he knew the person who had committed the crime and because he didn't stop them. Despite oh. the fact that he tried to stop him, he couldn't stop him and um, went to prison for it. Wow. And that's still the law in Illinois. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. So those of you who are interested um, in anything that's prison reform work, um, that's a really, really incredible. It's two episodes, actually, because we talked for so long that I broke it down into two episodes. (laughs) But it's worth listening to them. Okay. Ooh, this has been fun. Liz, will you share your three words with us one last time? Sure. My words describe myself and my journey are learner, educator, and evolving. And we talked about these three words. I think they're perfect for you. And learner and educator, all of those are great. Share with us why you selected Evolving. I mean, the work itself is always changing. And sometimes Evolving looks like learning new things. And sometimes it looks like unlearning things that you have thought to be true just because they're at the status quo for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that we never get to a place where you know we can just wipe our hands and say like, all right, I'm done. I've done all the things. I learned all the things. Um, it's important to not think you ever get to that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And I I love your three words. I love everything you're doing. I'm so grateful that you took the time to come out and sit with me. I know that you're a very busy lady. And I, I look forward to future opportunities to engage. Let's get you out here to Chicago and have you training some folks out here. That would be awesome. I would love to. I love Chicago. That would be so great. Liz, thank you so, so very much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Friends, thank you for being here. This was such a phenomenal conversation with Liz. The work she's doing is so important. We want to create change in, in our world. We have to start with our kids. So take the opportunity to go and check out all of her stuff and bring it into your homes and into your classrooms. If you enjoy the show, do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a review, but not just any review. Give us a great review, a five-star review, and tell everybody what you enjoy about the show. It helps other people find us. So you can be helping strangers choose bravely. How cool is that? And if you really want to be a rock star, please go visit our Patreon page. Find a tier level. They start at $4 a month that speaks to you so that you can join this brave movement and help us grow and do some really extraordinary things. You'll find us at patreon.com slash brave files. This is Heather Vickery reminding you today and always to choose bravely. The Brave Files is proudly supported by Audible. If you enjoy listening to podcasts, you're sure to love listening to your favorite books on Audible. 
Get your free 30-day trial complete with a credit for a free audiobook download today simply by visiting audibletrial.com slash thebravefiles. Again, that's visiting audibletrial.com slash thebravefiles. You've been listening to The Brave Files, stories from people living courageously. To learn more about the show, find our show notes, or get some great bonus content, visit thebravefilespodcast.com. And we'd love to know what you think. You can give us a call at 312-646-0205. Let us know your thoughts on the episode, the show in general, or maybe share with us how you're out choosing bravely. This episode is brought to you by Vickery & Co. Success Coaching, coaching that helps you maintain a life well-lived and a business well-run. Learn more at vickeryandco.com. Our music is produced by Matt Lewis. Follow him on Instagram at mattmmusic or visit his website, theunionband.com. We couldn't do any of this without our extraordinary audio engineer, Andrew Olson. Learn more about him and check out his work at findandrewolson.com. And special thanks to our associate producer, Kim Statler. I'm your host and executive producer, Heather Vickery. Thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week. 